does the Bible discriminate against women? And uh, as I mentioned before, quite a topical subject. And I haven't got a reading tonight. I thought we'll, we'll look at the, the various passages as we go through um, because we've got a lot of content to get through and we'll be looking up a few Bible passages as we go through. Now, when we speak about a subject like this, there's a real temptation for us to tread really lightly to avoid you know, the rancor and the rage that's often associated with a subject like this. But the problem is that if we do that, we basically abstain from saying anything that's meaningful on this subject at all. But at the same time, I don't want to be drawn into you know, supporting or opposing any particular side of the debate because God may rule in the kingdom of men, but that doesn't mean that God agrees with the politics of any one particular nation or party. And so I want to start off tonight with a story and a story that I particularly enjoy. And the story is about when the nation of Israel enters the land from the wilderness and it's a land that God has promised them. But there's one problem because the land of Israel, the land of Canaan as it was known then, is already full of people, wicked people with swords and shields and fortifications who quite understandably didn't want the Israelites around. Now, in the book of Joshua, where we read about the leader of the Israelites, a man named Joshua, he's standing there studying this first city they are to attack, the city of Jericho. And while he's there looking at the city, he meets a man with a drawn sword. Drawn sword. And I imagine that that man was quite an impressive looking man because of two things. First of all, we learn that he was an angel of God. And the second thing we learn is that he wasn't just any old angel. He was the leader of God's armies which I guess I think probably makes him one of the most powerful beings in existence. Anyway, Joshua goes up to this warrior who's got a drawn sword and he says to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And that's in Joshua chapter 5. And the angel's response is very insightful because he says, neither. That's probably not what Joshua wanted to hear. But then the angel goes on to say, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then when he heard this, Joshua did the smart thing and he fell on his face and worshipped. Now, what has that story got to do with tonight? Well, Joshua was the leader of the Israelites, God's chosen people. And yet the angel of God didn't say, I'm on your side. I've got your back. He basically said, I'm on God's side. And then it was up to Joshua and the people who were with him to see whether they wanted to join God and the angel's side. And God's side is the side that I want to be on tonight. Now, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be the commander of God's armies, but we are fortunate enough to have tonight access to something that allows us to hear what God says, his Bible. And that's what we're going to use tonight. So we go through some ground rules for tonight. Let's go through these ones here. What we'll do is we'll ignore the claims made by people of yesterday who said they were, were doing God's will. Lots of things have been done in God's name because they claim they'd be doing God's will, but that's not necessarily so. So we're going to ignore the historical references of people acting in God's name. We will examine some of the views today, but only for context. We will discard as best I can my personal views because, to be blunt, what I think isn't important what we won't do is selectively ignore some parts of the Bible because, you know, they're inconsistent with modern thinking, which seems to be a very modern, a common practice in today's society. And instead, what we're going to try to do and see if we can find out what God says about this subject and why he says it. 
But before we look at God's view, let's, let's have an examination of the current state of affairs of, of how men and women relate so we can better understand why perhaps God gave us his particular set of instructions. Because there is a problem today. Despite the progress that has been made, there is still a, pro a problem. I mean, as you can see from this slide, there's some very powerful stats to back up the fact that there is a problem. And this is, I've sourced this from the Australian Human Rights Commission. And we could go through examining the, the, the numbers in detail, but tonight it's not about how serious discrimination is or not in modern society. What I wanted to really bring out from this, this particular information was how society measures inequality. Now, the measure at the top of the slide is probably the most important. As we can see, it's a measure of income. It tells us that women earn on average 15% less than men. And their super over on the right is almost half that of men. And no doubt in part that's a product of the lower income and the fact they're also losing their jobs and, and therefore income due to having babies and, and supporting children. And what is clear from all these stats though is that one of the most important measures for society of equality is wealth. The subtext though is that if you're a valued member of society, then you'll be rewarded with wealth. But conversely, if you're, you know, if you're poor, then society doesn't really consider you that important. Now, that's, that's an interesting observation, a taken, you know, stepping aside from the whole gender issue, but it's not one that we can look at tonight. Now, I don't want to discard this altogether because it is important to recognise that poverty is a serious problem. But just keep in mind the number one way that society is seeking to, to balance the scales of gender inequality is with money. Now, the second measure, as we can see down the page a little bit further, is the number of women on the ASX 200 board and in politics. And so clearly another measure that society uses to determine your worth is how much power you have or how much influence you possess, what, what sort of glorious prestige you have in your job. And the third grouping is also about how, how much extra unpaid work women do. Now, while, while it might seem to prove that you know, men are slobs, we do need to remember that a man is almost twice as likely to have a full-time job than a woman, and therefore they just, they're just doing a different kind of work. But the key difference is, as this is pointing out, is that men get paid for that work. Women are doing all of this work, and they're, they're doing it for free. They're doing it for nothing. But again, we have this idea that women's relative worth is not as great as men. Why? Because they're not getting paid as much. Now, the final and most disturbing statistic for me, at least, is, is the amount of violence being committed against women, both sexual and otherwise. And you can read the numbers for yourself, but those are some very disturbing numbers. And from those numbers, it's pretty clear that men and women, statistically speaking, are in a different position in Australia. And the women are copying it far worse. But before we move on, let's briefly examine how society is trying to solve these particular problems. Now, as we saw from the majority of stats, three out of the four stats, society places a huge emphasis on personal wealth and prestige. And let's just zoom in on just one of those, those figures. And let's just look at the 15% pay gap. Now, according to the payscales.com slide, if I just bring that up now, it's, this is a site dedicated to uh, understanding pay equality or inequality in the US. And if we break it down, the main reason for the gender pay gap is for two reasons. First of all, women generally pursue careers that are paid less than those that men are more likely to follow. And secondly, women are usually the ones who take time off in connection with having children. And that impacts on the amount of work they have, which in turn reduces the amount of experience they get and the amount of promotions they get. 
And those two reasons, they're not the whole story. Apparently, even if you take these out, there's still a 2% discrepancy between males and females in the same roles with equivalent different experience. And that's when you have this controlled versus uncontrolled. But if we could just solve the first two problems, it would make a massive difference. You'd be down to around 2%. And that is what society is trying to do. It's trying to encourage women to study STEM subjects, you know, which often lead down those higher paying career paths. For example, if you just Google STEM in, um, you know, online, you'll find that there's many well-known and respected universities that they offer scholarships to women in STEM subjects. And society is also encouraging women to get back in the workforce earlier and to, and to work more so that they reduce that amount of time they're out of the workforce. Just recently, there was in Parliament, Australian Parliament, a lot of discussion about the, the childcare subsidy um, but it wasn't a matter of, of how much, uh, sorry, of whether it should be done or not. It was a matter of how much we should do it, how much we should support these women to get back in the workforce. Because there's this broad recognition that childcare is really there to empower women, primarily women, to get back to work. And so we can see from these two just examples that here is society's answer to this problem. It's to turn women into men. It's to encourage them to follow the same career paths as men. It's to eliminate the difference that they have around raising children. And that is, that is the plan to stop discrimination. Make everyone the same. And the corollary, I suppose, of this is that we turn men into women too. But that is the plan for society. Make everyone the same. Treat everyone exactly the same. And it's not working well at the moment, as we see from the stats, that there's still a huge problem. But given enough time, might this work? Well, the graph seemed to indicate that it might be trending the right way. But I think there is still a problem because I don't think many people have stopped to realize to properly consider why women tend to pursue certain careers and men pursue others. Now, obviously in recent times, we've seen that you know, with the careers opening up, there are many careers that once were the exclusive domain of men or one gender now have a good mix of both. Yet we still find if we look at the stats that there are examples of some careers that are heavily weighted one way or the other. Now, 85% of primary school teachers in Australia are female. 97% of childcare workers in Australia are female. 88% of construction workers are male. Now you could argue, and there'd probably be some truth to this, that there is some systemic discrimination or cultural reasons for these discrepancies. And I'm not gonna argue that there isn't, that that wouldn't influence the numbers in some respects, but to, to claim that it makes such a huge difference beggar's belief. There's just no way if you could eliminate that, you would still get it back to 50%. The reality is that there is a difference, that the truth is something we already know. There are, although a lot of commonalities between men and women, there are some differences between the two genders. And I'm generalizing here as well. So let's not forget that, generally speaking. Now, let me give you an example. You walk into the girls section of a toy store and, and this is what you see. Now, I kind of cheated. You can see here, I've gone on online because I haven't been in a Kmart store for a while. But you can see that there's, uh, there's, this is the girls section. And then if you go to the boys section, that's the kind of thing you see. Now, it's interesting, they're both have excavators. So perhaps we'll see more female construction workers in the future. But as you can just see by comparing those two different uh, results, there's a big difference. And remember, these are people who are trying to sell stuff. They're not they're not driving a political agenda. They're, they're marketing to the, the way that the, the stats and the research suggest they'll sell the most product, 
Now, let's pause for a second and let's not get dragged into silly ideas about girls not being able to play with boys' toys and vice versa, or even women not being able to do what men can do, or for that matter. We should all be adult enough now to know that applying generalizations to individuals is a recipe for disaster. Now, of course, there are boys who prefer girls' toys and vice versa. But at the end of the day, generally speaking, although there are many, many things that men and women have in common, there are nonetheless fundamental differences. And ignoring those differences mean, you know, the current attempts to create equality by treating everyone exactly the same may be a problem. And personally, I think the better approach would be to increase the pay rates of the female-orientated careers. But at the end of the day, I think a better approach would be to adopt God's system, which we'll finally get to in a minute or two. But before we, we look at that, there's still one area I want to look at, the, the, the idea of violence against women. And that is one area where society still recognises a very clear distinction between men and women. We have advertising, we have educational programs, and they're quite common these days to try and teach men to respect women and to not commit violence. And in this, we see clear discrimination in favour of women. But this discrimination makes perfect sense. Violence against women is a terrible thing. And through efforts like this, we can see that treating men and women identically in all ways is wrong. Due to, to, to the disproportionate impact on men, women experiencing violence need additional measures to help support them. And although I would say that men experiencing violence also need help, the fact is that women are at greater risk than men. And therefore, we should you know, dedicate more resources and attention to them as we currently see. Now, this distinction between men and women is based on physical attributes. And as we've seen earlier, they are not the only differences. But we'll look at that more a little bit later. And this, after all, is a Bible presentation. The key takeaway I want to take from this is that as far as modern society in Australia is concerned, modern society measures a person's worth, a great deal of focus is, is spent on their wealth or their, you know, how they're financially remunerated. The current mainstream solution to solve the problem of discrimination that we're experiencing today is to paper over the differences between the genders and to treat everyone exactly the same. But then the third point completely contradicts that because despite that point too, even modern society recognises that sometimes there is unavoidable differences that we need to recognise between men and women and therefore we do get some treatment in some scenarios. So now we've understood the, the, the status quo, what we're dealing with in society today, let's switch context and have a look at what the Bible says. And let's do that by starting at the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Sorry, I missed a slide. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. And it says there, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh." And the river that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, it's, it was a fairly long passage, but there were some really important lessons for us to learn from this one. Because when we see this one, we go back to the start of the passage. When God created man, he was alone. Not only did he not have a partner, without a female, there was no possibility of reproduction. And the result would be that Adam would always be alone. He had their animals, but they weren't fit for him. And so he would be completely alone for all of his life. But then God did something remarkable. Now, if we went back a little bit earlier in the record, it would tell us that God formed man from the dust, the ground. And so you would logically expect that if God wanted to make another human being, that he would do the same thing. He would have you know, scooped up some dust, breathed into its nostrils, and bam, you've got a woman. I mean, that's what God did with all the animals. Anyway, he, he created them male and female. He didn't create one out of the other. But with humanity, God does something unique. He takes, he takes a part of Adam, something that he has already created, and he takes that part and he makes something out of that part. Now, it's not a done for a practical reason. You know, there's not enough mass in a rib to make it another human being. Um, you know, not, God didn't forget to make a, a female human. After, she wasn't like an afterthought as well. God knew right from the start that Adam would need a companion for his plan to work. That's not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is this process of removing Adam's rib to create Eve was done to teach us something. And Adam, he recognized that straight away when he pronounced, he's shown Eve and he, he says that she's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And this wasn't just a pronouncement to say, you know, they're the same species. Adam and Eve were literally made from the same thing. And that's why we have straight after here this, this idea of man leaving his family and becoming one flesh with his wife. Man and woman are two parts of one whole thing that are reunited with marriage. So right from the very beginning, it's very clear that there's, there's, there's no idea of this, you know, precedence of one gender over the other. I mean, how can there be? They're the same thing. It's a single entity. How can one part of it have precedence over the other when they are one thing? Now, Adam and Eve, they're, they're most relatable to marriage, and we know that not everyone gets married. But nonetheless, it establishes this principle and the most important relationship that exists between men and women, and that is before God, they are one flesh, or at least they should be. And you know, as Tom Cruise so aptly put it, they complete each other. So equality before God is really the only logical outcome. And this idea is not just in Genesis. It's reinforced in many places in the Bible, perhaps nowhere more eloquently than in Galatians chapter 3, a very famous passage which says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, these verses from Galatians come from the context of salvation offered by God through his incredible plan that overcomes the sin in our lives. And as you can see, the, you know, the gift is offered to everyone, you know, regardless of race, occupation, gender. And once again, you can see coming through here as well, this idea of unity through Christ. It's because you, you belong to Christ. We're all equally valued in Christ because at the end of the day, we put on Christ. And what this, this passage is telling us is that at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people, those that accept Jesus and those that don't. 
And so that's how you see people before God in terms of equality. It's not male or female. It's those who have Christ and those that don't. Now, if that were the end of it, as far as the Bible was concerned, I wouldn't have a lot to say after all, many 20 minutes into my talk tonight. But the reality is that even though, as we've already seen, men and women are of equal value in God's eyes, that does not mean that they are identical. And it's extremely important that we understand the difference here. I have, I have two children, a son and a daughter, and I love them both the same. They're equally valuable, but they're not the same. If I were to treat them exactly the same, then I wouldn't be doing a very good job as a father. Equally, if I favoured one or the other, I wouldn't be doing a very good job either. Now, fortunately for us, God is a very good father, the best in existence. And God knows that although men and women are equally valuable, that does not mean that they should be treated exactly the same in all respects. And God knows this because, as we saw in Genesis, that is the way that God made it. And that is why the, the Bible makes a distinction between men and women. God does not go down the same path that society says of, you know, one size fits all. We'll, we'll treat everyone as, as much the same as we can. He recognizes there a difference. Now, some people will jump up and down and cry foul. But to that, I would say, why do we have special support programs in Australia to discourage violence against women? Why do we have Pink Ribbon Day? Why do we have male and female sporting events and teams? Because sometimes treating people fairly means treating them differently. And the challenge for us is to understand if the distinction between men and women is justified or not. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the differences between men and women in the Bible. Let's pick up again in Genesis. Now, after Adam and Eve committed that, that very first sin, God punished them as they deserved. And they and all of us were punished with mortality as a consequence of the sin. But in addition to mortality, they were also given each a unique curse. Now, to Eve, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now these curses were given to individuals. They were given to Adam or they were given to Eve. But the implication is that they would be inherited by their children. For example, just a little bit earlier in this passage, there was the example of the snake where he was cursed to crawl on his, on, in the dust all the days of his life. And today we see snakes crawling in the dust. And ergo, we would expect that women and children would suffer a similar situation by inheriting the curses of their forebears. And that assumption is largely borne out. I mean, I'm told childbirth hurts. Uh, I know that weeds grow. I know that work sucks. But we have to remember that a curse is not the same thing as a commandment. I mean, some lucky people have managed to escape or, or reduce the curse in some ways. Most of us don't work until we die these days. Some of us don't even work at all. Uh, women have uh, various options for pain relief in childbirth. I mean, they, they can't completely eliminate the curse, but they can mitigate it. Does that, does that mean they think they're doing the wrong thing? Should we be troubled by avoiding or reducing the curse? Well, by no means. It's, these curses were consequences. And at the end of the day, the only consequence that really mattered is death. And the only solution to that is God. But nonetheless, 
even though we, this is a curse, not a commandment, we see that even in this early stage that the experience of men and women, for better or worse, would be different. And there would be implications for these differences. Men would naturally be the ones who would be more likely to do more of the paid work. Women would naturally be the ones who would be more likely to do the child rearing. And that prophecy, that curse, has been abundantly proven by history. And if we need any further evidence, it's still the case today. We can just look back at things like the career types uh, that men and women naturally gravitate towards, childcare, primary teaching. It's women because it has that children and nurse, nursing sort of side of things as well, nurturing side of things. But once again, I have to make it completely clear, clear that the curse is not a commandment. The Bible doesn't say that women can't work, and that men can't be the primary caregiver. I mean, to be completely upfront, the Bible does imply in several places that that's the norm. But once again, that's been borne out by history. And despite the efforts of many, it continues to be the norm. But what the Bible says is not an excuse for society to arbitrarily force certain roles on people. The Bible doesn't say that women can't be CEOs. The Bible doesn't say that women can't run the country. It doesn't say that women are intellectually inferior to men. In fact, it's remarkably silent on these subjects. And there's actually a good reason for that. It's important for us to step back for a minute and remember what God's purpose on this earth was. Now, when we went through society's measures of discrimination, we saw that it was largely focused on wealth. But God's not interested in ensuring that we drive nice cars or live in mansions, or even that the wealth that we do have is equitably distributed. Those things are ultimately unimportant to God, and as followers of God should be unimportant to us as well. And true, God has promised to provide for our basic needs. But at the end of the day, God's primary concern is molding us to be like him, not to make sure that we have a bigger paycheck. That is why whether a woman is a CEO or a head of state or, or a cleaner is ultimately not nearly as important as whether she is a faithful person. And in fact, there is something the Bible says about becoming a CEO or a head of state, and this is what it says. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, there's a bit more to it, but we don't have time for that. And in a nutshell, what it's saying is regardless of whether you're male or female, running after money, power and glory is a distraction from more important things in life. Now, that's not an excuse to say, you know, exclude anyone from a particular position. But it is a warning about chasing after what ultimately are trivial temporary prizes that society fixates on so much. But while the Bible may not be prescriptive when it comes to jobs and caring for children, there are two areas that it does give quite definite direction, and they are roles in the marriage and roles in the church or the ecclesia. So practically speaking, though, if you don't get married and if you're not in the church, then as far as the Bible is concerned, there's really not much difference between men and women. Remember back to my Galatians quote, you're basically, you haven't put on Christ and therefore you're in a completely different category altogether. But please keep in mind these boundaries as we look at these two areas and remember that it doesn't look at any others. It's just focusing on these two areas. And that in itself is a very important thing to note. Now, let's look at the, the first one I mentioned. Let's look at marriage. Now, there are a number of different areas in the New Testament I could have turned to, but let's take Ephesians. I think that's a good, concise one. And let's start tonight by looking at the role of husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 29, it says, Their husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, we can see from that that the author of this passage, the man named Paul, is romantic. And Paul here is commanding husbands to love their wives. They don't have a choice. They must love their wives if they are to obey the Bible. And this love may not be the romantic stuff of Mills and Boone stories, but nonetheless, it's a very powerful thing. If we, we break it down a little bit, let's, let's work our way backwards through the passage and let's pick it up in verses 28 and 29, where it says that, that husbands have to look after their wives in the same way that they look after themselves. And that might sound very familiar because it's the same kind of logic and thinking that Adam and Eve had. They are one flesh. For a man to neglect his wife is like a man failing to feed and shelter himself. You don't get any more egalitarian than that, do you? Practically saying this is this is monetarily, you know, the husband and wife are equals. You don't have a his bank account and a her bank account. It's, it's the same thing. If he gets a Maserati, she gets one too. And there'd be absolutely no concept of, you know, committing violence against your wife because striking your wife would be like hitting yourself. Completely ludicrous thing to do. But this love is not just limited to this. If we go back and look at earlier in verse 25, it talks about men loving their wives like Jesus loved the church. Now, Jesus did an incredible amount for the church. He established it. He forgave it when it betrayed him. In the end, he died for it. And that is what husbands are commanded to do for their wives, to provide for them, to die for them. That is the protection that is afforded to women in the Bible. Now, there is discrimination here, isn't there? It's positive discrimination. I mean, I doubt too many wives would be complaining that their husbands would willingly lay down their lives for them. And if husbands just followed this command, we wouldn't be seeing the violence that we do today. Quite the opposite. But just like in Genesis, Ephesians has something for the wives as well. Verses 22 and 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their husbands. Sorry, I didn't actually have a, don't actually have that one for a slide, but you'll have to just go with my words there. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, if you want to look that up for yourselves. And here we can find, though, that there is a clear hierarchy established, and there's no avoiding that. This is this word submit it really sticks in the core of modern society. I mean, some people have sought to redact these verses from the Bible or to twist their meaning into something politically correct. But I'm not going to insult your intelligence by trying to do that. At the end of the day, when God created man and woman separately, he did so for a reason. He created them so that they could be joined together in that very important task of raising children, amongst other reasons. But to do that, he effectively had to give them complementary rather than identical roles. Now, just a moment ago, we spoke about, I spoke about the husband having the responsibility for caring for his wife. Now, how can he effectively do that unless he has the authority that which goes with such a responsibility? How can he be responsible for her if at the end of the day it's not his call? And let's keep in mind, this isn't the authority to enslave his wife or to dominate her. It's the authority to make the right decisions for them both as a single entity. It's the authority to choose to die for her rather than her choosing to die for him. Now, the comparison that's made here was the comparison that the husband and wife are like Jesus and the church. Now, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus didn't go around lording it over the church. 
quite the opposite. He did everything he could to support it. So this is not the authority for a husband to become a tyrant or an autocrat or anything like that. It's quite the opposite. And we'll come back and unpack that a little bit more later. But for now, you might ask, and, and this is a good question, why did God decide to make it this way? Well, the Bible tells us that for Adam was formed first. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And at the end of the day, God had to choose one person to be responsible in this merging of two people into a single entity. And God chose Adam. He chose the husband. Why didn't he make them equal, you might ask? Why does anyone have to be in charge? Well, God clearly understood that making men and women complementary instead of identical was a better way of creating a stronger team to raise the children well and to get on in life well. But in a team, you need a captain. And God chose the male to be the captain, whether he wants it or not. And that system is, is in God's eyes, a better way of making sure that all the different aspects of a family are covered rather than everyone being in charge, or as that often means no one being in charge. And this team paradigm, it really reinforces the importance of marriage, having a solid marriage. And the high divorce rate we see in modern society is one of the drawbacks because it leaves more often the women vulnerable because they are usually the less financially secure. That is one of the reasons why God was so invested and still is in strong marriages. But let's move on now to look at the other side. Let's look at the other situation where the Bible clearly instructs on us to us about the roles of men and women. Let's look at the role of women in the church. And I want to tackle this head on. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul, again, the author Paul, the same man we met before, he lays out some important rules about how to conduct an orderly meeting of the believers. So when you gather together, he's giving them instructions on how they should run the meeting or, or the gathering that they have. And in there, he instructs about public speaking within, within the church. And, and to simplify the chapter for the sake of brevity, he tells everyone basically to wait their turn to speak. And then towards the end, he adds what today really is sort of a bombshell. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 36. The women should remain, keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Now, some people have taken that passage out of context and for one purpose or another have tried to make it mean, for example, that women can't make any noise at all while at church. They have to be quiet as mouse, mice. But as I said before, these verses are in the context of a passage designed to help pup, you know, stop people public speaking over the top of each other. It is therefore seen as much more likely that what Paul was prohibiting here was, was women getting up in front of everyone else and, and speaking and teaching. And that's quite consistent with what Paul says elsewhere, where he, he, has, he also mentions, sorry, I just realized I might have been in the wrong slide. This one here, hopefully you can all see that. Please let me know if you can't. Where he says that I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain silent. But we have to recall again that this is very much in the spiritual context of the church. A woman, a woman can still teach other non-believing males about other subjects. And we, we have, for example, in the book of Acts, a woman named Priscilla teaching Apollos, a man who, although he had some idea about the gospel, um, Priscilla was still able to show him a more excellent way 
So she was teaching this man who wasn't familiar with the truth and helping him come to an understanding of that truth. And what this, this prescription on teaching and public speaking in a spiritual circumstance shows us is a consistency. It's a consistency with what we saw in that state of marriage. We have this, again, this spiritual order where God has himself, he has Christ beneath him, and then beneath Christ he's appointed man and then woman in terms of just the, the, the order, the structure. And we see this idea continuing the roles and responsibilities in the early church, deacons and bishops or whatever your Bible translate them as, they were all described as male roles. The, the apostles, the early church fathers were all male. I mean, if we didn't have Paul's instructions on marriage and public speaking, we might have concluded that maybe these choices were just as a result of a, you know, a patriarchal society. But in light of Paul's other remarks, it becomes quite clear that we have this consistent theme where spiritually there is a difference between men and women. But just like in Genesis and in marriage, women have a role as well. And if we stay in 1 Timothy, we find that Paul actually instructs us this. He says, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, what that's telling us is that women should still be active members in the church or the ecclesia. They're not, they're not for locking away at home or putting up on pedestals. They're valuable contributing members of the church. We find that, for example, in Acts chapter 2, that God poured out his spirit on both men and women. There wasn't a distinction made. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And we also find practical examples as well of in the Bible of women playing important roles. Miriam's it was Moses' sister. She took on a, an important role. Uh, the women supported Jesus' ministry. We have women being prophetesses and speaking the words of God. Just because a woman is different from a man doesn't make her any less valuable. And the trap here, again, is to assign value. We think that because, you know, men are the ones getting up in front of people, we tend to glorify them and the work they do. Look what a great job he's doing. He's helping all these people. But that's wrong. It's not right to glorify these people for what they're doing. In fact, it's the opposite of what Jesus taught us to do. When it comes to a life in God, it's not a matter of ruling over people or, or being glorified. We're not here to accrue power or wealth or glory. Jesus spent a lot of time and energy teaching his disciples and us that we must not seek after power and authority for our own benefit. Instead, his example, he famously washed his disciples' feet. He lived his life constantly serving others through teaching and healing. And by doing so, Jesus showed that there should be no exploitation of women by men in the church due to them having a different roles. And likewise, as I spoke about earlier, husbands must not use their position to dominate their wives. No, all these men have a responsibility to put other people before themselves. And that was God's solution to discrimination. By instructing those who were in a position to easily be able to discriminate against others to do the opposite to put other people first and to serve them. Now, once again, though, we can, we can ask the question, the very logical question of why did God decide to make such hard and fast rules? Why, you know, some women, you know, they might like to take up leadership roles or to do public speaking. Some men might prefer not to. I can, I can sympathize with that strongly. Why didn't God just make some guidelines 
And then we could use our own judgment about who was most suitable for the role. Well, it comes back to the consistency of God. He established these principles through creation, through marriage, and through the church. And the intention was to produce the best outcome for both men and women. And God did that, as we've spoken about multiple times, by making men and women complementary instead of identical. And sure, it's a different approach from modern society. But as we can see from early statistics, society's approach today of making men and women is far from perfect. And to believe that one day will be so, I think is pretty naive. Now, God's view, it's not politically correct. But then if we are to accept the Bible as the inspired word of God and not take liberties with, you know, selectively ignoring parts, sections or, or twisting them to fit our own narrative, then we have no choice but to accept that. And going back to that angel that met Joshua, God is not on anybody's side. We have to choose whether we want to be on his side. And there are plenty of good reasons for us to want to be on his side, reasons like eternal life and being part of a a brilliant system. And we don't have time to go through all those tonight since it wasn't the subject of tonight. But at the end of the day, we can choose whether we want to be with that angel or against that angel. So to return to our topic, does the Bible discriminate against women? That is the question we are asking. And I would say that the answer to that really comes down to your understanding or your definition of discrimination. I would say if we're going to be more precise about it, it's more accurate to say that the Bible actually discriminates between men and women. When God made men and women, He designed them to have subtle differences so that they could work together as a single unit to achieve what God wanted, to support each other as they struggle to live godly lives and to work together to raise godly children so that one day the earth will be filled with people and it will be filled with people just like God. That is the end goal. That is why it is. That is why we see the world as it is today. And that is what matters to God. Not acquiring wealth, not not acquiring power or glory, Because when all is said and done, it doesn't matter. It does not matter whether you were rich or poor, whether you were male or female. It only matters if you are in Christ or not. And if we are, then we're all equal before God. 